All right, so welcome to another episode, episode two. So this one is with Steve Starling. Um, for those of you who do or don't know, Steve Starling is one of the OGs of the uh, fishing media industry. And um, what can I say about Starlo? He's just one of those guys that, you know, you just won't find anyone who doesn't like him. And he's just always managed to bridge the gap and stay relevant you know he's had to reinvent himself several times you know right at the start starlo gave me a lot of time you know and he helped me a lot um with fishing techniques especially when people never really fished with lures much you know until uh him and bushy started making soft plastics and mate you know that stuff is just taken over and it's revolutionized you know the way we, we, we went fishing and you know he used to when we first started communicating it was by letter we you know i'd post him a letter he'd post me a letter back and you know i think it says a lot about the fact you know a lot about him the fact that he used to actually take the time to write back to you and you know he's got thousands of followers you know if there's anyone who could brag it's starlo but he doesn't he always stays humble i had a technical issue recording this with him and so he was actually hearing echo i hadn't done a podcast yet from pc to mac and he was on mac I've since figured out what I did wrong with my settings. Um, but, you know, I, I'm learning as I go with the podcast and, you know, everybody's got a different style and it's kind of, it's a, it's a tricky thing to get the, you know, the interview. It's not really like an interview and more like a conversation and didn't really get to wrap it up quite as good as what I wanted at the end because he literally had 60 seconds at the end to get to like another meeting. And that tells you everything about him. You know, he just such a pro wrapped it up bang went to the next one so yeah i asked him where he thinks fishing is going in the future we talk about that at the end and you'll be i think you'll be amazed because i was pretty surprised by what he had to say he had some really insightful and um yeah some really good comments so anyway here is the one and only the legend steve starling So, oh, well, I was going to say, man, it's been a long time since we had a chat. So, um, first of all, thanks for coming on and uh, coming on to my small little podcast. But, yeah, it's something I thought I'd enjoy doing. Um, I'm good at talking, people tell me. So, yeah, so how's how's things anyway, Starlo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty good. Uh, it's been a crazy, crazy couple of years, that's for sure. Um, coming off the back of the the bushfires and then straight into COVID and it's uh, nothing's been normal for about three years there haven't been any tackle shows haven't been any boat shows it feels like I've been living in a bit of a bubble but I've got to tell you I've probably done more fishing in the last couple of years than I did in the in the few before that so I can't complain too much oh well, that's good and, and what does like day-to-day fishing look like for Starlo these days uh it really varies quite a lot I mean these days I concentrate primarily on estuary and freshwater fishing. I do a little bit of inshore boat fishing for snapper and the like, but if, if I had to break it down percentage-wise, it's probably about 70% estuary, 25% freshwater and 5% offshore. But that does vary from season to season as well. Um, I've been doing a lot more local fishing. I've had, I don't think I've, I think I've been on a plane once in the last three or four years. So it's all stuff that I can drive to, but I don't mind long drives. But um, I've been doing a lot of a lot of local fishing on the south coast of, of New South Wales. A lot of estuary fishing in my local estuaries, and um, I've also gone completely mad on fly fishing for trout. I've always really enjoyed fly fishing anyway, but we've just had 
arguably the best trout season uh, in the last 25 or 30 years in this part of the world because of the La Nina weather cycle that we're in. We had a very cool, mild spring and summer and lots and lots of rain, so the, the rivers and the lakes all stayed well up and, and the trout just bounced back unbelievably. So I kind of dropped everything else and did heaps and heaps of um, mostly fly fishing for trout across this past spring, summer and early autumn, so that's been really nice. Yeah, okay. I find that interesting because, um, well, I don't know if you know, when I first started out fishing, that's pretty much what I started out doing was fly fishing for trout. I don't know what it is, but like when I was in high school, I saw an English fly fishing magazine in the in the news agents and I just, I don't know what it is, man. Like, But it, I just thought that was a duck nut, duck's nuts, you know, I was just like, because and you you did a lot of that pretty early on, didn't you as well? Yeah, I did. I was I went crazy about it. Um, probably in my late teens and into my twenties, and then other things came along that I got more interested in. But the other thing that really happened was we we had a couple of major drought cycles uh, here in the southeast of Australia, and the the tr- places where I used to fish for trout they just disappeared, or it became so scarce that it just wasn't worth chasing them anymore so I, I went away from it for, for many many years but we seem to be back into one of those fairly positive cycles at the moment for the, the freshwater and the, and the trout point of view and um, and so I, I got back into it and found that I loved it just as much there's nothing to me quite like walking a little stream with a with a three weight or a four weight fly rod uh, casting dry flies for, for trout that are actually rising to take um, take flies off the surface that I, and I don't care if they're six inches long or, or six pound it's just so exciting catching them that way and I've, uh, I've dived back into it in a big way yeah there's something about it I don't, it yeah I don't know what it is it's hard I find it hard to put it in words, but there's something about that kind of fishing. I think because it's more visual too, like, you know, snapper, take it in 20 feet. You don't really see anything. Um, and it feels a bit more like, I don't know, it's a bit, the other thing I wanted to ask you was, do you think there's a bit of like, have you gone back to it? Cause there is a bit of kind of like going back to your roots. Like, you know, you and I were getting into our <laughs> twilight years, so to speak. Do you think there's a bit of that about it too? You go back to kind of, your first love a bit yeah i think you're right i think that is a part of it also i think just the simplicity of it i mean you can you can make it quite complicated but the best um days i had on the water this past season were not even wearing a vest or a backpack or anything i'd simply put one little box of flies in my top pocket uh, a spool of tippet material in the other pocket and a, a set of clippers and some floatant, and that was it. And and a fly rod. It's it's really pairing fishing back to a fairly simple pastime. And there's also a lot of hunting involved in it. Like you said, there's a visual aspect. So a lot of time, if you even if you're not seeing the fish, you're certainly visually identifying identifying the places where they're going to be holding and feeding. Uh, and then if you dry fly fishing, of course, you see the fish come up and take the uh, take the fly. So it's got those visual aspects. It's got the hunting thing it's got the simplicity it reminds me of what i did when i was in my 20s so it ticks a lot of boxes there's no doubt about it yeah i'm finding that as i get older you know especially like you know i'm 50 this year so i'm i'm right in the middle of like a midlife crisis don't worry and like i'm going back to like a lot of the stuff it's like hunting as well i'm going back bow hunting got a compound and stuff just because that's how i started out like when we were kids you weren't allowed to have a gun to you about 10 or 12, Pop said. 
So before that, he was like, he gave us recurves, man. And the first thing we ever did was got bunnies on recurves, you know. So, yeah, and I think the other thing is trout, like you said, it's very, um, it feels very, it's very purist to me. It's kind of like the first lure fishing. And, like, i got nothing against bait, but I don't know, you and I kind of similar on this, I think. Like, there's just something about catching a fish on a lure. It feels a lot more... Um, it just scratches a better itch for me, you know. Um, and, and, and trout has that purest kind of form about it. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I've got back into tying quite a few of my own flies too. I certainly don't tie them all, but I, I, I do try and tie more flies. And there's something very, very satisfying about catching a trout on a on a, a fly you've tied yourself. I guess it's a bit like making a lure and catching a fish on it. So, yeah, it's uh, it's got a lot going for it. It certainly has. Yeah, I was going to say, well, you've done plenty of that over the years, made your own lures and been able to catch fish on them. And it's funny because I've only done a little bit of that, did a little bit of design work for um, uh, Jaden Wilder, may he rest in peace, from Mad Eye Lures when he was up and going. And, yeah, same kind of thing. It was very cool to work on something and and then uh, actually do it. So uh, well, one thing I wanted to go back and ask you about when I was saying about catch-up, so about last year, obviously, or a bit before, um, I watched your uh, Facebook page every day for like a couple of weeks, just like uh, in disbelief. Like it, 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 I'm talking about the fires, obviously, and um, it, it was like zombie apocalypse, man. Like, and you know, uh, take us through that, like quickly, like how you wrote it out, mm. like for because like for a long time there, man, it was like pretty touch and go it was and it, it all seemed to happen pretty suddenly too I, I actually had my son and his wife down here staying with us uh, just after Christmas 2019 and the bass fishing we were getting fantastic reports about the bass fishing in Brogo Dam which I think you fish Brogo Dam haven't you Ira yeah been there a couple of times yeah, yeah. Nice dam. Great little piece of water. And it has its ups and downs. It, what tends to happen there is the bass get to a certain size and then they go over the wall if there's if there's uh, enough flow. But we'd had a couple of years of drought and it hadn't gone over the wall. And suddenly I got these reports that people were getting 45 centimetre bass out of there on a reasonably regular basis. And we knew there were some fires around, but it all just seemed like stuff that was happening mostly on TV and a fair way from us. And we jumped in the car on, I think it was Boxing, no, it wasn't Boxing, it was the day after Boxing Day, to shoot down to uh, Brogo to take my uh, my son Tom down for a fish, and we got to within about five kilometres of the dam, noticed the sky was a rather strange colour, and got turned around by the manager of the, the park at the dam who was coming out with lights flashing, turning everyone around and saying, park's closed, the fire's only five kilometres the other side of the dam, get going. We turned around and came home, and within five or six hours, we were on um, watch, and, uh, watch and act and various alerts. My son and his wife had to leave to try and get back to Brisbane. They ended up getting stuck in Naruma overnight and having to sleep in the car. Fires were all around us. There were, there were water bombers and planes in the air. It was like the Battle of Britain. It was just crazy. And for the next week and a half, we just we lived basically out of um, the backyard. We had the, the two cars packed with all our possessions and we had folding chairs in the backyard and we'd sleep out there at night to watch for ember falls and hose the house down and stuff like that. We, we were on um, uh, 
evacuation notice three times and the third time we got the message that it was too late to leave but they stopped the fire out at the the highway about uh, four or five kilometers um, uh, west of us here and that was about as close as it got but we had embers and things falling in the backyard and it was it was a crazy time that's for sure it was the the, the loss of communications was really interesting because all the phone towers went down we lost all the tv stations we had no power of course so we went back to little battery powered transistor radios getting stations that were far enough away from us that their repeaters hadn't been knocked out and having to sort of hold the radio to your ear to try and listen to a scratchy signal to see what was happening with the with the fires in your area it was like going back to the stone age it was very very sobering and just as we started coming out of all that the news stories about this weird uh, covid disease that was coming out of china and the first cases in australia and we we rolled straight into that so yeah like i said crazy couple of years <laughs> yeah well no better time than to uh, probably ask you about that because um that was going to be my next question um you know, obviously with the fires and then, you know, COVID and everything that's happened, the world's been pretty crazy. Have you found that um, yourself, because I know for me, it's been like, it's been interesting for me because in terms of like COVID, not a lot actually happened, right? My life was pretty much normal as a few lockdowns, had to wear masks to the shops a few times, um, waited as long as I could, got my couple of shots. Um, But the interesting thing was too, right? Like, um i don't know you probably noticed on my facebook but like about a year and a half ago so at christmas i had a heart attack as well so 48 years old two stints in and you combine all those things together man i tell you what like it's been an interesting couple of years for me i'll say that because it's made me completely reassess everything and look there's a fair chance right that i got a pretty good chance i'll still make they say 98 percent chance of average lifespan right but then like there's higher chance that it could happen again and really what i'm saying is it made me reassess like just like everything like who am i what am i doing what do i really want to be did did you find there was a bit of that through covid or you know how did you kind of process all that stuff yeah look i think it did it does make you reassess those kind of things like just like you there were very little day-to-day impacts on us through COVID apart from having to wear masks and scan to go into places and things like that. And we we certainly, uh, our travel dried up completely and, and most um, most organised events were, were no longer on and stuff like that. But it does, getting older makes you reassess things. And I tell you what, when you, when you really start to notice, I reckon, when you're getting older is when you start getting invited to a lot more funerals than weddings. <laughs> yeah. You've got <laughs> mates that start dropping off the perch and people that you that, that have been part of your life for, for such a long time just um, aren't around anymore. That's the stuff that probably make, made me reassess more than anything else. You know, it's an interesting exercise to get a, a retractable tradesman's tape measure and pull it out to let's say you're going to have a life expectancy of 85, so call it 85 centimetres and then put your finger on the point where you are. You know, I'm on 64 now. I'm a lot closer to the 85 end than I am back to the, the 20 and 30 end. And that's the stuff that makes you think, well, I've only got a finite number of trout seasons or uh, brim seasons or anything else left. I'm going to start doing more of the things that I really enjoy doing and worry less about pursuing the things that I mostly did because 
everyone else was doing them. I felt like I was left out if I didn't. For there's a lot of talk these days about FOMO, fear of missing out. It's um, it's driven, I think, a lot by social media, and you see people catching uh, Mulloway or uh, Jewfish, as we call them over here, are a really good example of this. You see posts on Facebook of mates that have caught a, a metre plus Dewey on, on a soft plastic only two estuaries away from yours or whatever. And I used to think, oh, God, I better get out there and get into it. There's a few of these around at the moment. I don't want to miss out. Nowadays, I just kind of think, well, good on them. I'm, I'm wrapped, but I know how many hours they probably put in to catch that fish and probably uncomfortable early morning cold starts or fishing into the night or whatever. And I'm just getting to the point where I don't really want to do that. I don't want to put myself through a lot of pain to catch a fish just to say that I'm keeping up with the, the Joneses or whatever. I'd, I'd rather just go and do the things that really float my boat. I, I still get an absolute buzz out of catching big blue nose brim. I never got tired of that. It was something I embraced through the, the early days of the brim tournaments and everything else. And when Bushy and I kicked off the squidgies, it was a lot of it was about chasing big brim on light tackle on soft plastics and hard bodies in the, in the estuaries. And, I still get an absolute blast out of doing that. So I'd rather go and do that and have probably a 90% chance of actually scoring a fish if I go out for a couple of hours, as opposed to chasing a mulloway where I might have a 5 to 10% chance and have to do six or eight or 10 trips to, to actually get one. So I hope that makes sense and isn't too long-winded, but it's just about doing what you enjoy rather than doing what you feel you, you should be doing. <laughs> No, man, makes perfect sense. I'm so glad you said all that because you summed it up perfectly. And I think even though there's a couple of years between us, man, we're pretty much at the same place, especially because I think what happens with a heart attack too, right, is it just escalates everything, speeds everything up. So you all of a sudden, exactly what you said about the, you know, because I was looking, I was like, okay, average is 85. I might be a bit short of that. Let's say 75, 80. I've got 20, 25 seasons or whatever left. And you start working that out and you think, well, fuck, like, what am I going to do with those seasons, you know? Like, and, and I think the other thing I realised too about wisdom as well, Stalo, is that, like, excuse my French, but there's a fucking reason why old people are wise, man, and it's because it takes that long. <laughs> and I think, yeah, by the time you get to our age, you just kind of, like, over all that other stuff, you kind of tick most of those boxes and it's more just about doing what you enjoy and, and, and realising, like you said, you know, during COVID too, you know, I lost a few people to suicide as well and it hit hard, you know, three people I know really, really well and that kind of checked me up too and made me realise like, yeah, I've got to like look at what I'm doing. So now what you said there made absolute perfect sense. So yeah, and actually while we're touching on that, um, we've got the coming election because I was, you mentioned that back on, I just wanted to bring you back to that. So We've got an election coming up out of COVID. I'd be interested to know uh, your thoughts. We'll guys lose, uh, digress into politics for a little <laughs> second. And this won't come out until probably well after that. But so, um, but I'd just be interested to know your thoughts. Like where we at? Where we at with the country? Because you know the whole COVID thing, the way things were managed. Like I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that as well. Even like what you thought of like how it all sort of went down and how it was managed and yeah, where we're at, because I, I get a big kind of feeling out there. I don't know what you reckon, but people seem to be getting a bit tired of the the, the rotating door and the two-party system. But, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. What do you think? Yeah, look, I agree with you. I think people are getting um, sick and tired of, of politics as normal, which always seems to be about attack 
attacking the other side no matter what they say. You know, if they say it's black, you've got to say it's white. That, that whole thing really leaves a lot of people cold. I was, a, I was a history teacher, English and history teacher, for a very brief part of my life early in the, in the piece, and, and I'm still fascinated by history. And I'll be, I'll be particularly interested, and I probably, I probably won't live long enough to, to see a, a long historical view of it, but I'll be interested to see how history looks back at this, this era from about 2018 through into the early 2020s with COVID and everything else. And with the, the ructions in uh, politics in the US and swings to the right in some countries and swings to the left in the other countries, it, it'll be interesting to see how history judges all that. Um, I think our politicians of all of all ilks did a reasonably good job, especially in the early stages of, of COVID when they weren't too sure about which way it was going to go. And it seemed like the, the biggest thing health-wise that had ever happened in our generations, that's for sure. Um, but I think over time people got a little bit sick of, well, they got sick of the arguments between state and federal. I mean, that just annoys the crap out of me. The fact that um, if you've got a different uh, a different party in power federally to the to the state, they'll they'll also oppose what each other are saying. Uh, whereas if they're of the same persuasion, they'll they'll agree with each other. Stuff like that. We just got to get. I think people just want to see politicians get past all of that and actually say, yeah, that was a really good idea that the other mob had. We might add, add that to our uh, platform as well. We agree with them on that. You so rarely hear that stuff. You only ever get that a little bit on defence and a little bit on immigration, not so much on anything else. It's going to be an interesting election. Like you said, by the time this comes out, it will probably be in the rearview mirror, so we'll know what the result was. But I think the uh, independents are going to get a lot of a lot of votes in, in this election. There's people are moving away from the, the two big blocks, and it's, and it's not hard to see why. There's not a hell of a lot of really admirable talent at the top of, of either of them, I don't think. And... Um, it's funny. People say politicians get paid too much for the for the generally crap job they do. I wonder if we might actually be better off paying them a lot more because I think the problem is that the talented people who could be in politics end up going into business or something instead, where they can make a lot more money than they they can in politics. It'd be interesting to know if we if we paid a bit more, if we get a better class of peanut. I don't know. But um, I the other thing that I really notice is that that. The masses, the, the sort of quiet majority of people out there are generally ahead of the curve on a lot of things that the politicians are still catching up on, things like the environment and climate change and all that kind of stuff. I think people have got a gut feeling that we need to do we need to do more and it takes the politicians several cycles of their uh, elections and terms in power to catch up with what most people are realising just as a matter of common sense that there are a bunch of things that we're, that we're doing that we probably shouldn't be doing to our planet and maybe we should ease the throttle back on some of them and we're going to start seeing that, I think, more and more in, in countries right around the world and uh, it'll be interesting to see who wins this one and what they end up doing in, in regard to, to those kind of things. I mean, the environment is really important to me as a fisherman and someone who's spent a lot of time in the outdoors across my life I've seen a lot of changes. I've seen some really good things happen. I've seen some bad things happen. But I just know that we can we can generally do a better job than we are doing at looking after the, the planet that sustains us. Yeah, well, all good, valid points there. And I don't disagree with any of that, really. it's uh, I think there's a bit of an appetite. I just... 
other thing is, I well, I kind of had my faith in humans a bit like what you touched on there. I was like, you know what? Because my son asked me, like, Dad, you know, <laughs> he's 15, right? So when is the world ending? You're like, and, you know, you've got a lot of people preaching dystopia through COVID and all that. And I said to my son, well, you know, I went to shops and it wasn't there and I went to the cart track and it wasn't there. And, you know, the other thing is interesting about COVID, all this stuff, none of it was really kind of a surprise to me. I think what happened was a lot of people just found out a lot of shit about our laws that they didn't realise were already there. Like, you know, the emergency powers, what they can do. Like, none of that was really kind of a surprise to me. So, yeah. And and what you said about the independence, when I first started voting, it was like less than 1%, I think, voted. And then it was like, then I seen it go to 3%. Then it's like 10 And I'm pretty sure last time it was close to 20 or just under so you, yeah it's interesting but i mean how i think you touched on it more money because definitely the smarter people tend to go to like big ceo jobs but then are you just going to make the problem worse if you put more money into that place <laughs> you know what i mean i do yeah and it, it, it's about it's a valid argument yeah absolutely i don't know what the answer is but um it's we're certainly not getting the answers we we want at the moment and i don't think very many of us are particularly enamored with the the kind of politicians that we've got these days. It's just a lack of statesmanship, I think, and a lack of long-term vision. They only ever look as far ahead as, as the next election cycle, and perhaps that's um, that's part of the problem. I don't have the answers, that's for sure. And I've got uh, I'm I'm an interested observer in politics, but only as, in as much as I'm an interested observer in. Uh, the planets, I guess. I don't intend to go to any of them, and I'm so glad I never went down the political path. There was a few people made suggestions earlier in my life that that perhaps I should have had a look at that stuff, and I'm I'm so glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't see you as a politician, man. I just like to chew the fat with people about politics. And look, I think I find I think we're in interesting times. The other thing is, I put my faith in people. Like I said, you got to remember, I looked up this stat the other day. Um, because I was having this conversation with my son, and I was like, people are a lot smarter now, man, than what they used to be, right? And someone out there, like, trust me, like I know a couple of good lawyers, these conversations have already been had. So you said before, you nailed it, politicians are generally probably the last people. Generally, like artists, and I'm talking like songwriters and people like that, they tend to be the people who are at the forefront of, like, you know, social change, and they generally start, you go back and you think about black vote, homophobe, all that kind of stuff. They were the people who, like, got in trouble for saying it first, and then eventually, like, everybody else kind of caught up, you know? Yeah, that's a, so, yeah, anyway. that's a really uh, really interesting point. I hadn't sort of thought of it about it that way. You, you think back to the, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, it was the songwriters that were uh, ahead, of the, ahead of the curve on all of that stuff, and uh, everyone else caught up with them afterwards. So, yeah, maybe artists... Are, are indeed the group to look at for uh, some guidance about uh, the future. It's good, good thought. Yeah, for sure. So, anyway, we'll we'll leave politics there, mate, and we'll uh, we'll move on to the important stuff, <laughs> and that's fishing. Uh, something that you and I obviously um, love, a uh, passion that we've both had for a long time, and um, the, I kind of we'll we'll get into a few other things, but the the kind of the number one thing and one of the main reasons why I really wanted to do this podcast was, you know, like um, I'm going to pump your tires up a little bit for a sec, right? But like you know, there's been a lot of people come and go in the fishing media in Australia, including myself, and um, you know, um, you know, I had a few people do the wrong thing by me, but I'm pretty sure 
your list of people who did the wrong thing by them is a lot bigger than my list. And you've and the other thing is you kind of like I was, I was thinking about this right. You kind of like Madonna in a way that like you know how she just kept reinventing herself, just kept reinventing herself, and that's kind of what I see like you've done and like man, you're all over the socials, like, man, I can't be fucked with half of that shit, you know what I mean? It's like, you're all over that, you constantly had to evolve, and like, as time goes on, the time between the evolution is like, shorter and quicker, so you had to move faster and faster, and look, you know, for someone who's getting to the end of the road, you're supposed to be the other way, you're supposed to be like, behind the ball on all this shit, and obviously like, you know, it's your living, you're passionate, but you could easily like, go do something else, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I guess if I did, if I if I've had a strength through my career, that's been it. It has been the ability to reinvent myself and to keep up with change. I put a lot of it down to my childhood. I I grew up as the son of a, a country policeman, and uh, my old man got transferred around a lot, as the police tended to in those days. Particularly if they wanted any sort of promotion, they had to take the the transfers and I went to something like nine schools through throughout my life and a lot of people you know their eyebrows go up when you tell them that and they go that must have been terrible but it actually wasn't I think it really taught me to roll with the punches and to and to handle change and to be able to adapt reasonably quickly to change and I, I resent it as much as anyone else when something when when the whole rule book changes and the thing that you've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years suddenly goes out the window. I get cranky about it, but then I just kind of bite the bullet and, and move on. And I was just thinking about it before before we recorded this because I knew you were going to talk about uh, reinventing myself. There's been a number of them. You know, when I started writing, I used to write on a typewriter. I actually used to crank a sheet of paper into a typewriter and write an article and then and then pull it out and put it in an envelope and send it off to a magazine. So I, I went through all the changes from that to computers. Then I went through the whole change from film to digital in the in the photographic side of things and stuck to my guns for a while and was never going to go digital. It's not a patch on transparency. Slides have got better colour and all this sort of stuff I used to make. And then I just realised, you know what, that horse has bolted. I either get rid of this old film camera and get a decent digital one or I'm going to get left behind. So I did it. And then the, the print magazines have largely gone. So I've gone from print to online. I used to be able to communicate with most of the serious fishermen in Australia through one or two magazines. It was Modern Fishing and Fishing World, and that was it for many, many years. And the twenty or 30,000 genuinely serious uh, anglers in the country all bought one or both of those magazines, so you could communicate with them all through those magazines. Nowadays, there's a, a multiplicity of, of sources of information out there, so many different platforms, and most of them are digital, most of them are online. So if I wanted to stay in touch with people I, I had to go down that path so yeah it's been the changes have been accelerating I, I, I have no idea what the next one is if I knew what it, what it was I guess I'd be a, a multi-millionaire because I'd be able to get onto it before it happens but there's sure to be more changes even in my working life because I don't intend to retire I'll keep I'll keep writing well about fishing and communicating about fishing for as long as I can. But I have been able to roll with those punches. One of the big things that really helped, I think, was the fact that I remarried um, 10 years or so ago and my wife Jo is 10 years younger than I am and very savvy in the whole digital side of things. She ran her own very successful advertising agency for many years and she helped me make the break into social media and everything. And she, she'll be the first one to tell you that I'm actually 
are more advanced on the social media path than her these days. I've got my finger on the pulse of Instagram and Facebook and everything else and a very active YouTube channel and uh, I'm absolutely loving making my own YouTube clips and stuff like that these days. So I guess it does make me a bit unique as a 64-year-old dinosaur who's still out there, still <laughs> pumping it out in the in the digital world. But thank goodness I am, otherwise I would definitely have gone broke. <laughs> Oh yeah, for sure, man. It's I know we sound like a bunch of old blokes now, but it is fucking crazy. Like when you think about how much it's changed. Like I got a funny story. I was thinking about this as well, and I was thinking, well, because what happened was how I first seen you was when I was in high school, right? I was buying fishing magazines, right? There's Starlo. We got very similar styles fishing. We like the same kind of things. And then our first actually like. Um, communication or whatever was actually by pen and paper <laughs> and funnily enough right i've still got it somewhere because it was just when email was coming in and the first actual one or two correspondence because i've got this letter right i know how i know is like you sent me a packet with like some plastics and shit in it and a little letter and you wrote down your email address on there and said like you know we don't need to do letters anymore you can like email me right so you think about that to magazines to like where it is now like it's just it's fucking wild i reckon like a few things to pick out of like what you said there and i think you're selling yourself a little bit short and you just like really quickly said oh yeah when things happen i move on quick well that you said that quickly but that was the difference i think between you and me is like you know i, I realized that at a certain point it took me a long time starlo but i realized that anger is a punishment we give ourselves for somebody else's mistake obviously you work hard too like you kind of miss that i think you you work hard no matter what you do you constantly work hard and you're constantly at the innovative level as well you're not just happy to be another angler or whatever you're sort of always pushing yourself to be better would that would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. And it's because I enjoy that. I think I've always been able to work hard at things that I really enjoy and not work so hard at things that I find boring or repetitive. So, um, yeah, I guess that's just human nature. I remember back when I was a magazine editor, I was really good at selecting photos and helping with layouts of the magazine and deciding what the content of the magazine was going to be and guiding the whole process and really bad at returning people's slides and responding to uh, inquiries from kids about how they could become a, a famous fishing writer and things like that, you know. So you tend to put things into two piles, the stuff you get a buzz out of and and it just doesn't seem like hard work to, to do that stuff and you might put immense amount of hours into it. Uh, and then the stuff that's tedious and, and tiresome but really needs to be done tends to get put on another pile and, and not done when you're a, a bit of a, um, I, I, I guess, um, what's the what's the word I'm I'm searching for? The people who tend to just do the stuff in life that they that they really enjoy and and, and avoid the other stuff. So that's a weakness of mine that I'm that I'm very much aware of. But it, it can be a strength in another. A hedonist is the word I was trying to think of. I am a bit of a hedonist. I like the, the enjoyable things in life and tend to steer clear of the other stuff. But we all know that you need to get the the other the other stuff done. And I suppose my definition of what might be boring and repetitive might differ to other people's too. You know, now that I've started editing my own um, YouTube clips, for example, I'll spend two days just sitting there editing a eight or nine minute clip, just getting the cuts to exactly where I want them to be and the sound to where I want it to be. And I think a lot of people would find that stuff pretty boring, but 
because it's a creative process, I, I find it really quite enlivening and, uh, and and really enjoy doing it. So it never seems like hard work when you're doing stuff that you enjoy. I guess is the bottom line to what I'm saying. And I've been I've been lucky enough in my life to to mostly work in in jobs where I. Getting up in the morning is actually quite exciting. What, what have I got to do today? What have I got to write? What have I got to go out and get photos of? What am I going to go fishing for today? Those are those are much nicer questions to ask yourself than how many widgets am I going to have to screw onto the machines as they go past me on the conveyor belt today. So you and I have been pretty lucky, I think, in our choices of career over the years. You sort of touched on where you grew up, but you didn't really sort of say much about how you got into fishing because obviously if you were moving around the country uh fishing would have been a bit hard i guess so how did you um tell us a bit about how you actually got into fishing and when was the first point where you kind of knew like i don't know what it is but it like it just sparked something in you and you just thought like i, I like this yeah yeah that's an interesting question and like a lot of kids in, in my early years, I, one passion after another had come along. I was into model aeroplane building for a while. I was into rock collecting and various other things. And, and fishing could have easily not popped up on my radar because it wasn't something my family really did. My old man was more of a hunter uh, than a fisherman. He, when we were out in western New South Wales, he used to do a lot of pig hunting and roo hunting and stuff like that. And he'd throw a set line in occasionally, but he wasn't overly enamoured with the whole fishing side of things. Um, and, and I did tag along and do a little bit of fishing with with them, uh, just hand line fishing and set lining and things like that. But it was actually, um, it was probably just one of those serendipitous sliding door moments that my uh, my dad actually won a rod and reel on one of those chocolate wheels at the local fair. You know, they used to spin the thing and wow. round it to go, chica, 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 and it pulled up. And it was a little, it was like a five foot solid fiberglass rod with a, a closed face. One of those push buttons sits on top of the reel, closed face, um, reels on it, sits on top of the rod. And uh, thick springy nylon line on it. It was already rigged up with a, a little a wonder wobbler spoon a frog colored wonder wobbler spoon and we were in condoblin and which is in the absolute center of new south wales at the time and the local river was the lachlan and um headed out there so he gave the rod and reel to me he wasn't overly interested in it and uh we headed out there i think the next weekend just on a on a picnic and the old man was going to do some some shooting and i wandered down to the bank and started throwing this little wobbler out and winding it in and I was fascinated by the way it swum through the water and looked like a little fish and I'm in the middle of being fascinated by it this bloody half pound redfin perch came from nowhere and ate it and I stopped winding the handle and just ran backwards up the bank and dragged this thing kicking and screaming and bouncing up through the dirt and landed my first fish and my so my first ever fish was on a lure and I just it just lit uh, a, a light in me it was like wow how exciting is that to throw a piece of metal in the water and make it look like something that's alive and have a thing come out of nowhere and eat it that is really exciting and and that was that was it from then on all I could think about and I used to read about catching barramundi and Saratoga all these things I wouldn't see for many many more years to come but I was already hooked on the whole fishing thing. And when we ended up in Bega on the far south coast of New South Wales, not all that long after that, um, and I'd, I started fishing off the Tarthra Wharf down there. And I used to, when I got to be about 10 or 11, I was actually allowed to head off on my own. This is how different things were in that 
in those days, people today, parents today would throw their hands up in horror, but I used to get on the little bus in Bega and take the 11-mile trip out to um, to Tarthra on a Saturday morning with my, my hand lines and my rods and reels on the bus and then go and sit on the wharf for four or five hours and then catch the bus home with a bag full of yellowtail and little silver trevally and slimy mackerel that I'd caught. And um, from that moment on, it was... It was it, displaced all the other things that I'd been interested in and just became the, the sole passion in my life. And I've never lost that, um, the, the sense of mystery, the, the, the things that live under the water and how different they are. I did quite a lot of spearfishing around that time too. So I spent a lot of time in the water watching fish and, and spearing fish and seeing how they behave. And I think that really helped me uh, as a fisherman. But And the books that I read when I went to bed at night, the books I read were fish ID books and things like that. I had a stack of them next to the bed and um, I was just fascinated by the whole the whole fishy thing and it's never gone away. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, eh? That's a cool story about the rod and reel. I like those little like sliding door moments look you probably would have got into it anyway but that's that sort of stuff yeah cool i like that and it's like it's that old thing like no one really kind of knows um i guess why we like the things that we do i think a lot of it is just connected to our dna because um like i got a I, well i grow heirloom seedlings and vegetables for most of my living these days and it's interesting because i sell plants to people right starlo and then they come back to the markets like six months a year later right and they say man, this like plant like changed my life. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they, and it's, it's the whole thing of like, you know, the hunter collector thing. And they're like, what, what is it? What is it? You know, and I say, look, this is what I think, right? So I hold my arms stretched out as long as I can, right? And I say, this is how long humans have been alive, right? And I pinch two fingers together at the end. And I say, this is like living in houses and buying from supermarkets, right? And the whole rest of this is just, like hunter gatherer so i think it's connected to our dna that's what it is and looking some people you know they couldn't care less but you know i think um sparks there's something about it and what you said you got lucky getting one on a lure <laughs> first up because i caught them on bait first and that was cool don't get me wrong i had the same sort of feeling but when i discovered lures it was like um yeah it just went to a whole different level which actually i was going to ask you this question when we get to uh um the actual fishing technology but let's jump there now because the interesting thing about lures is right it's not new like they've been around forever right but i'm interested to know your thoughts in terms of where you came from the industry of like why it did take so long because you know look bass we know they kind of bite pretty much the same as brim a bit different and look there was guys back in the day obviously you know that were onto it um and you know um but yeah i always wondered like why do you think it took so long before the you know because man those little you know two inch grubs right they were in just about every tackle store in australia for like since the 50s hardly anyone threw them a few people were throwing them for flatties and all that but no one had, had really kind of cracked it and do you think it was because i often wondered oh were we just like kind of waiting for braid like a delivery method but then you know light line was around forever as well i'd be interested to know what you think about that like why why it took so long yeah it's interesting that you mentioned braid uh, towards the end of that because when you when you gave me an outline of some of the subjects that we'd be talking about and you asked asked me to think about what i thought was the most important innovation in fishing in my lifetime braided line was was what i actually identified as the big change and i don't think we can underestimate the catalyst 
uh, effect that braided line had in transforming um, lure fishing from being just something you did for a couple of species. It was definitely the way you, you know, lots of people threw metal lures for, for tailor and salmon for a million years. Uh, yes. Lots of people threw little wooden lures with bibs or, um, or floppies or whatever for bass. Lots of people threw selters for trout. And as you said, soft plastics and things like that for flathead and barra up north. But that was about it. No one thought about snapper or mulloway or brim or whiting or a whole heap of other fish that we now know are eminently catchable on lures. No one thought about actually going out and targeting those those fish. They caught a few as bycatch while they were chasing other things and said, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? I've got a snapper on a on a metal lure when it sunk to the bottom when I got a backlash off the rocks. Who'd have thought a snapper would eat a metal lure? And yet we all know they eat live fish all the time and prawns and octopi and all sorts of other things. So why wouldn't they eat a lure? But they, we just didn't think outside that square. But I really do think that the advent of braided line and the, the things that went with it, graphite rods were also important. What they did was they gave us the feel to be able to tweak lures for things that didn't necessarily just charge them down at high speed like a like a tuna or a tailor or a salmon and climb all over them but things like brim that might just peck at a soft plastic pick it up quite subtly off the bottom um, and, and unless you can feel that you don't know it's happened and you don't catch the fish so I don't think we should underestimate the importance of those delivery vehicles in in making the transformation. And then, of course, it's about communication as well. The fishing magazines right through the 40s, 50s and 60s didn't change much. Every year an article came out on how to catch brim on mullet gut or pudding bait or whatever, how to catch a snapper on a, on a peel prawn on a paternoster rig, nothing changed. And then... Um, Ron Calcutt came along with the, the original Australian angler that later became Fishing World magazine and started doing cutting-edge stuff uh, and, and based it very much on what was happening in surfing magazines at the time. And, you know, surfers hadn't changed much for a long time either. They rode big, long wooden boards and then suddenly these little short, nippy fibreglass boards came from nowhere and completely revolutionised surfing. And it was a bit the same in fishing and Ron took a lot of his leads from what was happening in the in the surfing and the music world, interestingly enough, and, and applied it to, to fishing and to the design of his magazine and got people thinking. ANSA kicked off about the same time. So we had the Australian National Sports Fishing Association. They were thinking outside the square. They had uh, lure fishing categories and master's awards in lure fishing and fly fishing and things like that. And people started applying tackle to much lighter tackle to, to big fish and, and catching things on lures that had never been thought of as lure fishing targets. So the whole thing fed on itself. And I, I think all of those components are really, really important. But gee, if I had to single one out, I reckon it's that braided line. I always remember there was a little brochure came with the original spider wire and spider wire was one of the, the first braids I used. And it was a little American uh, brochure in there talking about what it would be like to fish with braided line if you'd never done it before. And the analogy they used for a strike was running over a brick with a lawnmower. And I reckon they absolutely nailed it because the first time I ever got a, a solid strike on braided line from a barra or something like that, it was like nearly dislocated my shoulders. And you, you think, wow, how long has this been going on for? And I've been fishing with stretchy, bloody rubber band of nylon line all my life. And suddenly I can tell what's going on at the end of the line. I know when it ticks a rock. I know, I know when a fish breathes on the lure. And that really, really did change our fishing.
Yeah, I think you nailed it, man. Like, the finesse side of it is, like... And, like, people don't understand, like, what you said then. I always used to say to people, like, when you get hit by a big fish, right, I used to say to them, it's like someone just walks up with a broomstick and just, like, whacks your rod as hard as they can, you know? And, yeah, it was... um, Braid's gotten a lot better. Interestingly enough, what are you throwing these days for the braid? Well, I'm still a Shimano Pro Angler, so I, I use mainly the Shimano oh, stuff, right. and I'm, I'm use, I, I love the Power Pro. I've been using Power Pro for for years, but they're they're more refined and skinnier braid now. Is the Kairiki, um, and I, I yeah, I really enjoy that. It doesn't wear as well as the um, uh, the Power Pro, but boy, for the for the brim and stuff like that, the really skinny stuff in it is great, and it's so much better. Like you said, when braids first first turned up, they were pretty ordinary compared to what we've got now, but they still had that sensitivity and feel and that almost complete lack of stretch, which I think was was what it was all about. That was the other thing that really surprised me. Deep water, I don't do a hell of a lot of deep water bottom bouncing, but when you do it with braid, it's actually exciting because you can feel what's going on down there. You don't have to think. I wonder if there's a fish on there or not. That rod seems to be bending a bit more. But now you feel the tap, tap, tap and set the hook and you can actually get some fight out of a fish 50, 60, 70 metres down in, in deep water. So it's, it's it's changed everything, not just our shallow water finesse lure fishing, but our, our deep water bottom bouncing as well. Yeah, because when I thought about it, <clears throat> asking that question to you, I thought, what was the difference for me as well? And it's like, we were throwing lures, right? And we were getting a few trout and... You know, certain things like readies and all that, like I was going, but, you know, as far as the brim, like the difference was, and like we had like, you know, man stretch 15 plus Tilson bass and those kind of things, which like perfectly good, proper like brim lures. But the difference was, man, we were throwing like 20 pounds. <laughs> we were trying 20 pounds because no one had the balls to like, and I've got to tell a funny story here real quick about um, you and me. I remember like the first time that little package I was talking about, you sent me over some lures and you said look man here like tie this on basically go do this right and i have to give you credit because to this day i said starlo <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about man there's no way we can put four pound on and go to like barrack street jetty and pull big fish out of there like they're gonna smash us up and i just remember to this day you saying to me like just do trust me trust me just go try this right and interestingly enough right this is how fucking stupid we were right even then, we still didn't really kind of believe you, right? And it took you and Bushy to come over here and do a little segment um, for, what was that TV show? I can't remember now. You'll remember. But you just went, like, in the front of the Murray there, the first bit, and just went up and down throwing loose, and you guys fucking smashed it. And then it took you guys to come over here kind of thing and show us, and then the penny dropped, and I was like, all oh, right, this is something. So then we went throwing loose, and I'll never forget that little package you sent me. The first weekend, actually, we went in Perth. We got a couple, but it was hard work. But that can be Perth, like, any day, anyway, kind of thing. So I was like, no, let's take these out of Perth, where I know the brim are kind of, like, uneducated. So me and an old mate, um, Craig Campbell, actually, he lives right near where you are now, Maria. He lives there somewhere. I think he's a firefighter, too. Uh, anyway, we took him up Moore River, and I'm, like, starlight. I'll never forget it. Like, I'll safely say that, you sending me that package like changed my life you know like we we had five brim like in the first 10 minutes we smashed like 30 40 brim all day got like a couple of 40 or 42 craig got a 1.2 that was on the cover of fishing wa and like man i got a job out of it you know like worked in the industry for years and like 
yeah, I've always been grateful for you to like, you know, for that sharing of information and you've given us, man, way more than like we could ever like replace you. And that's one thing I really admired about you all through your career, man. And don't worry, right? I've been on both sides, right? I, I, I could tell stories, right? Same as you. And I've seen how both sides play. And a lot of people, especially writers, right? They're not really telling you the truth. Let's just say that, right? They're telling you a certain amount of truth. And look, you and I, we're not going to give people our secrets, you know, but we're going to give you enough information. And that's what I've always liked about you is that you've always been legit with your information. You've always been prepared to, like, give people, like, the best quality of information. And I think that's part of why, like, you've, you've managed to, like, be so good for so long as well. <laughs> well, thank you for all of that. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's really actually quite heartwarming to hear that sort of stuff. And I have always tried to be absolutely honest and I'm not going to ever give people GPS marks to my favourite spots or anything like that and, and I'll tell them up front. If that, I get asked sometimes, oh, where did you get such and such a fish? Where's that? And, and I either just don't answer it or, say, or, or make a joke, a joke out of it or whatever. I'm not going to spoon feed people to that extent but I'm also not going to ever give people misinformation about a lure technique or, or whatever and say that this works when it doesn't or take a take a lure and stick it in the mouth of a fish that I didn't catch on that lure or whatever and do and we all know that sort of stuff goes on from time to time and it just it just would stick in my throat doing doing stuff like that I try and give the right information interesting that you talked about that uh, that session on um uh, Hooked on Adventure, that series that, that Bushy and I did when we were over there. In, yeah, in Mandurah down the, the front of the Murray River there. That was in a little was inflatable, I think, or one of those tinnies that looks like an inflatable. <laughs> a tender. It was a tender. Yeah, a little yeah. tender. No electric or anything like that. And we're just pulling up and drifting along. We just did what we did back home, um, but we would have loved an electric. And we smacked some. And they were, uh, they're still the hardest fighting southern black brim I've ever caught. I don't know what... What they what's in the water over there? Yeah. But those things were wild. Bushy, the first one that Bushy hooked, and it was a good fish. It was probably like 1.1, 1.2 kilos, and he was on pretty light, uh, pretty light leader. But that thing ran more line off a reel. And Bushy doesn't muck around with his drag settings. He fishes it as hard as he can. We thought it was going to be a little mulloway or something. And this brim's come up bright silver, looked like a yellowfin brim yeah. from over here, but it was definitely a southern black. And boy, talk about um, full of sting. But we did exactly the same thing down in, in Tasmania. I remember one of the early squidgy nights we did down in Hobart and we knew there was some pretty good brim in the in the Derwent and the locals down there caught them on crabs and stuff. And a few of the more switched on guys that worked at a couple of the tackle shops had started catching them on small hard-bodied lures. But they told us point blank, they said, oh, you won't get them out of a boat. You've got to catch them off the shore because the boat's... Yeah, the boat scares them away. So you've got to crawl around on the, on the rocks on your hands and knees and throw hard bodies at them from the rocks. And that you're, you're wasting your time in a boat. And Bushy and I looked at each other and went, take us out tomorrow. So they took us out in a boat, again, without an electric, and we got them to just drift, you know, casting distance out from the rocks. And we just pinged big Derwent black brim one after the other. And these blokes are looking at each other and go, oh, my God, you can do it out of the boat. How good's this? We can Let's go and fish that spot we can't get to from the road. And they were 
they were so cranked. Yeah. And by the time we went back a year later, they all had they all had bow mounted electric motors and were telling us how to catch rim on, on lures. It was just wonderful to see that that progression and just to open the eyes of locals to the to the fishing that, that they were sitting on. We did that a lot with the squidgies and it was really quite it was a real buzz. It's almost like a drug, you know. You go to places and and tell them how to use squidgies and you'd see the scepticism in their eyes and then you come back there a year later mm. to do another tour and those same people are becoming up to you with photos of the 93 centimetre flathead or the metre 15 dewy that they caught on um, on a soft plastic in the in the year since you'd been there and then and start giving you tips on oh you need to use this colour though this is the colour for uh, flatties in this bit of water and all this sort of stuff but just to to see that progression and to see people's eyes open to the potential potential of the of the fishing in their area with the the lures that we were helping to design that was that was a major buzz. Oh mate, it was. Honestly, it was such a privilege um, to be around at that time. Really, when you think back, right, like think about fishing in the last 100 years. Fuck, not a lot changed the first bit. And then for us to be around and what you said about taking those guys out, I reckon if you ask me what's the most fun I had, that was probably it, you know, especially the early days when shit was like, you know, taken off and then I wanted to do the same thing. And the buzz, the feeling I got from it, you know, like I'll never forget a couple of quick stories up in Port Hedland. We'd take plastics up there. there was a guy jeff anderson he was kind of onto it up there but no one had done like light line plastics out of a boat with an electric kind of thing we went up there we're killing it all day and these two old boys they're soaking baits you know anyway after six five or six hours they come over and they say guys we, we haven't caught anything right and we've seen you guys like you've been hooked up all day like what are you using you know so i just gave them the same spiel you gave me right here take these time on and then i'll never forget it probably about it was 12 months later, it was, I got a letter, handwritten letter at the Fishing WA office and it was these two old boys, right? And like these two old boys had moved to Port Hedland style to retire. Like they were like, I'm pretty sure like, I'm going to say seven in their seventies, right? And they, they wrote me this letter. I'll never forget it. One of the most satisfying things ever, I reckon, my fishing career. And they basically said, look, we're two old boys, right? We're 70. We thought we'd seen it all, right? And they said, in the last 12 months, we've been throwing these plastics around up here on light line doing what you said. And they basically said, it's fucking blowing our minds. <laughs> like, we're catching bigger fish and fish, because that's the other thing, man, what you and I discovered, right? You don't get to be 40 centimetres and 20 years old without being smart about what you put in your mouth. That's why they're not taking those baits. Like, sure, you'll get them occasionally, but, you know, when I changed over to lures, man, because I was keeping a diary, and in the first 12 months of changing over to lures, I caught more fish over 40 than I did in the 10 years before that on bait. And, man, we got lucky, like I said, being around at the right time and especially uh, the way you were able to, like, ride it and then make a brand out of it, squidgies, and, man, those things are so good. They're just, like, oh, I love the, the prawns, probably my favourite. But, yeah, I've caught so many, many good fish on those. So, anyway, so we pretty much covered the um the innovation stuff i'll do have one question for you i'd be very interested to know and i'm sure other people would as well you know the old hypothetical right you got you got a few days left right you got enough time for one or two trips right where, where are you going and let's say okay i'll say anywhere in the world but also i won't say one you can give me a couple and a couple of spots like if you just could go one or two more places in australia or or anywhere to fish where would that be 
Yeah, well, on, on the anywhere in the world thing, it, it would definitely be back to the, the flats of Christmas Island with a, an eight-weight flyer on in my hand on a perfect uh, day with about four mm. or five knots of breeze and a whole bunch of bonefish coming in on a rising tide over the edge of the flat. That would do me for a, a final fishing session, a pocket full of crazy Charlies and, a, and some hungry bone, <laughs> bonefish. That is just... That is right up there with some of the best stuff I've ever done, that, that bone, bone fishing on the flats in, in Christmas Island. I've been twice in my life, uh, once in the late 80s and once in the early 90s. I haven't, haven't had enough dough to go back since and um, and probably won't ever get back there, and that's okay. I've got, I've got the memories. And as far as in Australia, my, my happiest... Um, Memories in Australia are on the western side of Cape York Peninsula between the, the tip of Cape York and Weeper. I did multiple trips with um, Greg Bethune, who had a liverboard uh, charter operation up there called Carpentaria Seafarers. I did about 23 trips with, with Greg across uh, a wow. bit over a decade. I was basically his unpaid publicity guy. I used to do all these ad shots and write all his copy and everything for him, and, and he'd give me uh, trips in return for that. And those trips... Uh, especially in the early days through the through the mid 90s when there was no one else up there you, it was really rare to see another boat really rare to see a four wheel drive on the beaches or whatever and we'd walk those beaches with with fly rods again it's interesting that both of my both of my uh, uh, bucket list things that, that that I'd do if I only had a few weeks left to live both involved fly fishing and and it would be fly fishing those beaches with just the right light angle and schools of golden trevally and the odd permit and giant herring and tarpon and things coming along the beach and, and throwing flies at them that's that's my idea of heaven on earth that's for sure yeah well, that's interesting you say that the old bonefish you know they get them they, they're pretty much onto them in Exmouth now i know it's amazing i i I haven't had a chance to do it over there. The, but from everything I read, it's it's a little bit different in that they're in considerably deeper water than they are on the flats in most other parts of the world, and they're very, very hard to see. They reckon that uh, you've really got to have your eye in to, to see them regularly, but I'd still love to give it a go. But there's something about them when they're in ankle to knee-deep water and their tail tips and stuff are coming out of the water and, you, you know, they're coming towards you and you get one shot at them and you get that fly in front of them and watch the, the body language change and over they go and suck it up off the bottom and then you've got this thing on that only weighs three pounds and it's got you into the backing before you can say shit i'm on <laughs> and then they just they yeah. don't stop they're um they're they're, they're a great fish I, I love them have you caught them over there in wa yeah so i've got a few but kind of more accidentally bycatch and what you were saying about x mouth um so long story so 96 i was i went up to carnarvon for a while like working finished my apprenticeship, just wanted to get out of Perth for a little while. So I went up to there and I knew, oh, it's good fishing. I was into surfing at the time as well, you know, so Nalu and the Bluff. Um, and I was interested to like live there for a year. So anyway, and what happened was, how I discovered them was, I was living at the caravan park and this old boy used to go up to like Exmouth and um, Shark Bay for like extended stints for a couple of weeks and he'd come back. Anyway, I would always be interested, oh, you know, what'd you catch, Rara? And he's like, oh, you know, He's telling me, he's like, oh, yeah, I caught these and I caught these. Right, right. And he's like, oh, I caught these, caught these big whiting. It fucking tastes like shit, man. He's like, they're full of bones, right? And I was like, what? What? And I was like, oh, show me, you know. He's like, oh, I've got a couple in the freezer. And I, can't, I, I suspected straight away. I was like, sounds like bonefish. But I was like, no, nah, it couldn't be, you know. But this is like the mid-90s. So anyway, go have a look, man. Sure enough, these things are bonefish. So I was like, you know, I was 
you know, talking to all the tackle store owners in Perth. No one knew nothing back then, really. So I went up there and I, man, I spent serious time, like put a lot of effort in, couldn't get one, basically. Then like, you know, skip, like go forward like about another five or ten years. And then when I was working at Fish and WA, I was doing a lot of trips up to Exmouth and stuff. And like, yeah, we started getting them like kind of like 15 foot plus just like jigging plastics on the, uh, and like sometimes you could get them up in the flats, but I think you're right. What you said, like I only ever got like a couple and, oh mate, they were awesome. Like you can see why people like them. I think they don't go as hard in deep water because they can, part of the the good thing about the flats, right? It's like brim on the flats. They can't go down. So all their power is just transferred into straight, like going out. Mm. but yeah so oh, well that's interesting that you said um that you said bonefish i wouldn't have picked that for a million years <laughs> but yeah that's that's quite interesting um so we covered innovations oh that was the other thing i did want to ask you just on fishing like so you know obviously you've been an innovator yourself but um and i know you're probably going to like say um the og himself uh vic mccrystal but uh who who were your sort of influences like when you were coming up who was the guys that you looked up to that you were reading and that you know you kind of subscribe to yeah Vic McChrystal is definitely the, the standout one there and I used to read Vic's stuff in the old Australian Outdoors magazine I can remember actually discovering the first Vic McChrystal article I ever read was sitting in a barber shop as about a seven or eight year old kid waiting for my first bar- proper barber's haircut and there were they had a pile of magazines there and uh, uh, one of them was Outdoors and there was a Vic McChrystal article in there and I started reading it and absolutely loved it so yeah I was a huge admirer of Vic's writing, um, both hunting and, and fishing writing and just his outdoor writing in general. And then I've already mentioned before Ron Calcutt. Well, Ron Calcutt was really my hero. He was, uh, and he was the hero of a lot of kids my age uh, when we were in our teens through the, the 70s, I think, because of because of the magazine, because of the Australian Angler. And I was luck, lucky enough to end up working for um, Ron and with Ron on, on Fishing World and becoming editor and working alongside him for, for many years. So those two were definitely the, the, the formative um, icons in my life. And then later in life, I was lucky enough to do a lot of fishing with Bushy and then work together with him on the squidgies. And I'm often asked to nominate who I think is the best fisherman that I've ever fished alongside. And I would have no hesitation whatsoever in uh, in listing Bushy as that person, as far as a, a multi-species angler and someone able to adapt to new conditions. Much as I'm able to adapt to technologies, Bushy's able to adapt to fishing. And I think you could throw him into the most exotic fishery somewhere overseas that he'd never even heard of before. And within two or three days, he'd be showing him a new way of doing it. He's just, um, he's a bit of a freak as far as that goes. So I've been very, very lucky to have the, the holy trinity of the, the father, the son and the holy ghost in um, McChrystal, uh, Calcutt and Bush. They'd be, they'd be my three that I'd list. Yeah, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think Bushy too, he's like, um, and like, you know, like I said, there was people around throwing plastics, obviously, before you guys and stuff, but the difference is, like, you guys were doing it and writing about it, and as you and I know, that's a whole different beast, you know, writing and, you know, coming, getting that information across, and then you've got to be a good photographer as well, and you constantly got to be, like, at the forefront, like, pushing it. It's not as easy as what people think, so, yeah, I... they're all people that I looked up to as well. Do you ever, um, one thing just about that, and I've got actually a brim comp question I wanted to ask you, which I forgot about. Um, 
do you ever just sit like because man honestly when you when you th- sit back and think about it right it's been pretty crazy like your career like it, you couldn't have made that shit up imagine if someone had like said all that to you at the start this is what's going to happen like you would have just looked him in the eye and said man you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> do you ever kind of like sit back and just reflect and think think about it all like that yeah i guess i didn't very much until more recently and it can't, it's one of those things that comes with age and you were, you were saying before about how wisdom comes with age and so too i think just the ability to be able to look back on your life and, and appreciate the things that perhaps not so much you took for granted along the way but they were just they were happening to you so you didn't stop and examine them from from afar but I do look back on it all now and think just how blessed I've been and how lucky I've been to have gone down the, the career paths that I've gone down and seen the changes that I've seen and fished with the anglers that I've fished with. And it's not all luck. Of course, you, you know, you make your own breaks as well. If I hadn't gone to uni and trained to be a high school teacher and, and learned how to string a few words together and make sense, I wouldn't have been able to quite quickly become a reasonably well-known and, and well-published fishing writer when I got when I got bitten by the fishing bug and really got into it. It was just a, it was a happy uh, combination of, of things there where I had the passion, but I also had the ability to communicate it. And I knew plenty of far better anglers than me, and I still know heaps of far better anglers than me. But they don't have the same ability to be able to translate it into words and, and pass it on to other people yes. and teach it. And that's that's a skill and, and I don't mind putting my hand up and saying that I've got that skill. I'm by no means a brilliant angler and I'm quite slow quite often to, to innovate and to make change and I, that's why I've always needed to be around. I think people like Bushy who are good at that kind of stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. and um, But I've been able to look at what they're doing and translate it into language that that other people can understand and, and make use of themselves. So there's there's a difference between being an innovator and being a teacher, and, and I've been able to take the best of both, I guess. Yeah, okay. That, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. That you, you What you found was the, what you were good at was the teaching bit because also I think you're selling yourself a bit short there on not being a very good angler. But, yeah, I, I think that is the difference between you and other people is that because like when I used to read articles back in the day, right, it's like most writers are like this, right? Go here, tie this on. I went there, I caught this, right? Whereas you, like, you had this way of, like, making me feel like I was there. And that's kind of what I tried to sort of model myself around, you know, in my heyday when I was writing and um, a bit of my own different flair. Like, I always used to, like, put the Aboriginal history in there and try to give a feel for the place. But that that is where, you know, I, I drew a lot of my uh, inspiration from, for sure. So, yeah. Um Oh, we'll start wrapping it up pretty soon, but I've got a couple. Actually, one question I do want to ask you, right? Sorry to throw you on the bus, but I've always wanted to ask you this, and I forgot to put it on the run sheet, right? You'll be all right, trust me. Um, back, like, in the day when we were fishing the brim comps, we made a grand final. Um, you and I, you qualified for your state, which I think would have been New South Wales, and I qualified WA, and we went over. And you probably remember the final we were talking about. It was... It was, I think it was, um, you know what, this is bad. I can't even remember. My memory's getting bad. I think it was the Clyde. I can't even remember what river. Mm-hmm. But it was in New South Wales there, not far from Charlotte. It was fucking hard. The fishing was, like, so hard. And halfway through, like, the last day, you pulled the pin. <laughs> you basically, <laughs> do you remember this? Yeah. You pulled the pin. You parked it. You were like, fuck it, I'm done. Now, the funny thing is, right, I didn't want to throw you under the bus. But what I'm interested to know, right, is... Do you think that was like 
a combination of just like all ego or do you think it was just like you felt the pressure because you know you are starlo it's on your home water like you know you're supposed to like catch kind of thing and but you know because i i would think you're kind of used to that because that's what tv's like and people don't realize that as well being on a tv show you and i've done that fuck man it's harder to catch on camera than what people think you know and what they don't see is all the times you didn't catch so i always wanted to know just like to not throw you under the bus sorry but I always wanted to know from a point, like a mental point of view, yeah, what you sort of thought about that, you know, like throwing it in mm. halfway through the last day. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do vaguely remember that one. I think it was the Clyde and I can I can still remember Slick Wright, Chris Wright, who was a great tournament angler, hanging shit on me about doing it because he's, he's driven back to the, the boat ramp and I think I might have been sitting up on the veranda of the pub or whatever eating fish and, yeah. eating fish and chips when he came back in and he's looked up and gone, Jesus, Starlo, what are you doing? And I said, mate, I'm over it. I've had enough. I, I came in two hours ago. I mean, I wouldn't have done it if I'd had a non-boater in my boat or whatever. It was just that we were, uh, I can't remember why I was fishing alone or maybe I had an observer or whatever. We might have been into the, the last stages of the grand final. But I, I, Or if I did have someone, they were as keen to come in as I was. I can't remember the exact details. But if I had my time over again, would I do it again? Probably, yeah. I just I just reached a point on that. And, and that happens to me in fishing. I just go, you know what? This is too hard. I am just not enjoying this at all. In fact, I'm really, really disliking it. And, and I'm not going to crack it. I'm not going to... I'm not going to find some secret way of catching fish in the last five minutes. I can always remember Steve Morgan from the ABT saying, you know, you're only ever five casts away from a bag limit. And <laughs> it's theoretically right, but I just knew in my inner self on that day that it wasn't yeah. going to happen and I just wasn't going to grind it out anymore. And Maybe I was probably already in, in my late 40s by then and probably getting to that point where I was starting to burn out in the, in the comps. I mean, I love those comps, but... Gee whiz, they're, they're a hard game when you get a bit older. Um, just the, the amount of time on the road and you party pretty hard and you fish hard and you pre-fish and then you get in your car and you drive to the next one. It's, it's, not, an old, it's not an old man's game, or not in my estimation anyway. And I think I was probably getting fairly close to burnout by that stage. And Yeah, I was, I was enjoying my fish and chips and a beer, that was for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, look, to be honest, that day particularly, I remember it was fucking hard. And look, yeah, it was it was, it was was a grind. It was one of those things like, you know, I was, I think I ended up 12th or 13th and I had a good one on on the racks, like a low 30 that would have put me like easy in the top 10 around 7th days. And it's so frustrating, especially when you fly all the way from WA and, and do all that. And so, and I, I know what you say about like the burnout. It was interesting that you say harder when it was, you know, and, and the travel and all that. And look, but here's the funny thing about it too, Star. Like, fuck, man, we had some fun. Like, <laughs> do you remember Foster Megabucks, you, <laughs> me, Dave Welfare and Dave Simo, right? We won't say any more about that night. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. Like, I couldn't tell you about the night before or the night after or, like, you know, the comp before that, the Clarence or whatever. So, yeah, look, that's part of it, just, like, having fun and making memories. And, look, I'll be straight up and say this, right, that, Back in the day, man, fuck, I had a shocking ego. Like what you said, if someone was catching something, I had to go do it better. If dudes were catching 40s, right, then I had to have 45s in my magazine. And and I realised, like, getting older too, and actually that's something where feel free to comment on. I'm not sure whether you want to comment on this or not, but I know you've had your challenges as well. Um, like, you know, I've got been cursed with the black dog most of my life, and 
one of the ways I've kind of learned to sort of deal with it and process it is I realized that a lot of that shit, man, is just ego. <laughs> and when you strip that away and how I do that, I won't go into it all now, but really meditation and like not like any kind of woo weird shit, right? <laughs> like meditation is literally like practicing thinking. Like I'll give you an idea, uh, an example, right? You do a race online, eye racing, right? A 10 lap race. All you're thinking about is where you break, where you turn in and where you accelerate, right? You're breaking markers, right? Try and do a whole race where that's all you think about and you don't think about anything else. Your mind doesn't wander to like bills or family shit or whatever, right? That's meditation. Because if you can focus, the other thing is what it does is it teaches you, meditation teaches you like how distracted you constantly are. And you don't, I find like I never really took the time back in the day to like sit down properly like process a lot of that stuff and now that I'm a bit older and a bit wiser like yeah I've sort of realized like how much of that stuff like we used to do back then it was just like it was so ego driven really but you know if you want to win comps and get mag covers you know (laughs) you kind of got to do some of that stuff yeah that's right and I mean ego can be interpreted as a negative but a lot of you, you don't get to certain places in your life without a certain amount of ego and I, I think there's a stage in your life when you actually need ego if you're going to if you're going to have some ambition and you're going to kick some goals and you're going to get to things but later later on in life it becomes a lot less important to you and you let go of a lot of it what you were describing as meditation is is the trendy term these days for that is mindfulness and I'm a great believer yes. in the fact that fishing is one of these mindful things where it takes just enough yes. of your brain power that you don't think about the other shit um, without completely dominating your brain. But it just it keeps you it, it just occupies you and oh, I don't know engages you enough that uh, um, that you can forget about the uh, the bills that you haven't paid and the you know the financial worries that you've got or the, the issues you're having with your family or whatever else you can put all those things aside and just concentrate particularly lure fishing where you're actually engaged every cast and I, I don't know if I'm unique in this but when I'm lure fishing I'm basically visualizing what that lure is doing coming through the water yes. all yep. the time and I constantly, um, visualize a fish hitting it, and eventually it happens. Usually, uh, but you know, I actually think of that fish screaming in from the side, or coming up from underneath, or coming from behind, or whatever, and nailing, nailing that lure. And I'm visualizing that happening in my mind as I'm as I'm working the lure, and I'm very mindful about what it is. I know when I've been fishing for too long, and I'm sure that day that I ended up eating fish and chips on the veranda of the pub was when I stopped doing all that. I stopped visualising what I was doing, and I stopped being about mindful about the fishing that I was doing. And I think mindfulness is a wonderful uh, tool for dealing with mental health issues and things that you and I have both um, dealt with in our lives, and I've got plenty of mates that have either dealt with them or not dealt with them, and some of them aren't around anymore as a result of not being able to deal with them. The mindfulness of fishing, I've never been really heavily into gardening, um, but I, I see gardening and doing it properly as being a, a very similar thing. Same with cooking. I love cooking, and I find that when I'm in the kitchen and I'm following a recipe and I'm trying to get the tastes right in a dish, that's the sort of mindfulness that takes me away from that other stuff as well. And obviously from what you've said about 
uh, motorsports, they do exactly the same kind of thing. And if you're not mindful about what you're doing, you're probably going to end up upside down in the off the side of the track or whatever. And it's those it's those things that that keep us engaged and and keep us mindful. I think that keep our keep our mental health good. And everyone needs something in their life that they can be mindful about and which gives them positive feedback and which they're they're halfway good at or they're at least getting better at as as they do it. And those things are very, very important for keeping our wiring intact, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All Again, all excellent point, points and comments because that's a big part of the problem with our species is we're meant to be present. We're not really kind of spent meant to spend too much time thinking about tomorrow or yesterday and because we do obviously we beat ourselves up and the other thing is you know you've got to plan for the future and you still got to have money to pay bills and all that kind of shit but yeah the mindfulness thing i think that's why people like you and me are so drawn to fishing you also named two of my other passions cooking and that as well and it's just and you're right it's exactly the same kind of process because you know you're present and and what you said about the visualization i've always done that and what i try to do as well is I try to actually visualize what I think that snag looks like underwater. So where that timber looks like it's going, where my where the fish is might probably going to be sitting, you know, that little pocket you and I just, you know, we get to know after experience. And, yeah, and I try and do the same thing. And I think that's why, like, you know, we always joke and we say, oh, fishing's cheaper than therapy. But And we're lucky because people like, not so much me these days, but you especially, like, and back in the day, man, we were spending like 100, 200 days a year on the water kind of thing. And it's amazing, like, when you look back, like, at what that kind of, that time, like, does for your soul. You just, it keeps you grounded. It keeps you, uh, yeah, it's something about it. And I think what you nailed it there, what you're saying about the, you know, just the mindfulness, that's the cool word. But, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that um, because it just reaffirms for me that it's what we got to what we got to do. So um, just to finally wrap up then um, on the fishing, I'm interested to know your thoughts in um, where you think we're headed in fishing because we're in interesting times. And um, the interesting thing is, right, like probably 20, 30 years ago, right, the greenies were actually on our side, right? Now, like, it's almost like they're the enemy, right? Like, not really, but you know what I mean by that. They want to shut down, you know, everything in terms of like hunting, fishing and it's interesting because part of the problem in Australia is our isolation, obviously, and you know a lot about the American system, and that's you know that's where I would love to see Australia in terms of like, you know, being able to hunt public land, but it's all done like on a you know ticket basis and all that, and then the tickets pay for the rangers who properly look after the place. But um, you know, sometimes look, I hope that's where humanity is going to like end up because world's best practice. But you know, there's world's best practice and heaps of other shit that we. We, we don't do and, I, and if anything i see australia like and look i've got nothing wrong with like national parks and you know like man how many fishing closes have you and i seen like in our time you know and and look you've got to have reserves and all that but it just seems to be like going too far you know and I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know your thoughts and obviously you know the other thing to remember is like as humans we do tend to do things like the old pendulum we go too far one way then we go too far back the other way and then we kind of end up somewhere in the middle but yeah you know in terms of like you know lockdowns and even like you know like man i can see a day right probably like not even that long star though right where like i don't know where the horse racing and like greyhound racing is gonna make it mm. like long term man in 50 100 years i i don't see it and where mm. do you think that's gonna impact us in terms of like hunter gatherer people like you and me like to mm. you know 
take our own stuff. You, you think it's going to be around for generations to come? What are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I, I, to be totally honest with you, I don't think it will. I think in a in a hundred years from now, and you and I will be long gone, but I don't think recreational fishing will exist in the format that we know it today. There will still be there'll still be fishing. It'll probably be in stocked ponds and things like that, like they do in Asia and parts of, of Europe. It'll only be pursued by a relatively wow. small yeah. number of people. I, I think it's just inevitable and I think things will change. It's, it's kind of sad, but I won't be around to be sad about it. So uh, I'll, I'll still be able to enjoy, you know, we'll be able to enjoy fishing for the rest of our lives. I'm quite sure about that. It will change a little bit. There'll be some more restrictions perhaps, which is fine. I've, I've got nothing against restrictions. I, I call myself a greenie. I'm, I'm a big um, defender of uh, the environment but you're right it's it's not just about that it's about I was listening coming home from fishing uh, just in the last couple of days I was listening to a uh, a story about the direction that that meat and protein is going in and how there's been there's big switches to artificial protein artificial meats proteins extracted from soybeans and things like that but the other thing they'll be doing is growing meat from the cells of cows or pigs or chickens or whatever, basically on big petri dishes in in factories. They'll be growing meat of these animals, but without ever having to grow the animal and kill it. I, I think in 150, 200 years, people will say, believe it or not, back in the in the 2000s, they used to actually get the cow and kill it and cut the meat off it and eat it. And kids will go, oh, that's disgusting. They used to kill the animal. That is so cruel. Now we just grow the slab of rump steak in, in, the, uh, in the processing department of, the, of these laboratories, and that's, that's your meat. And I think that's, things will change beyond recognition and the idea of killing animals uh, or even causing pain and distress to animals for, for pleasure will not exist in, in 150, 200 years' time. I, I, I'm quite reasonably certain about that. And, yes, it does make me a little bit sad in a way because I think they'll have lost a lot by losing that direct contact with the hunter-gatherer thing that we've talked about and the fact that, you you know, you go back far enough and if you weren't able to go out and actually hunt something and kill it, you'd starve, or if you weren't able to dig something up and eat it. Um, but, no, I don't. Sadly, I don't think it's got a long-term future. But as I said, um, it's not going to worry you and I because we're at the we're at the part of our life where we've got uh, less and less of those seasons ahead of us that we talked about, and we will get through it, and we will fish, and we'll continue to enjoy ourselves. But I wonder what people will think about what we wrote and what we talked about, and podcasts like this when they find them uh, in in a hundred hundred and fifty years' time, they'll probably think that we were. They'll probably look upon us, I think, a bit like we look upon the the whalers of the previous century, people who went out and, and harpooned humpback whales. And, and, I mean, I don't think that's a good thing and I don't think that we need to go back to whaling and I don't think we should go back to whaling. We look upon those people as being colourful characters and brave souls and adventurers and everything else, but what they did was actually something that we no longer approve of. And I think that's how people will look back on, on fishing in 100 to 150 years' time. So it'll be interesting to see if I'm right. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll never get to find out, I guess. But, look, I can't argue with too much more of that. And I, I find it really interesting because I, I can't really disagree with, like, too much of what you're saying there. I think eventually it kind of will get to the point 
or what you said, like I thought, oh, maybe, you know, the only way to fish is you might be able to go in on a charter and, you know, there are X amount of charter spots available a year or whatever or something like that. Um, but it will probably work, move to a phase like where it just doesn't happen, you know, kind of at all. And like you said, I think in the future there literally will be some kind of, they'll look back and say, oh, yeah, remember when they used to like catch fish and they used to like actually grow cows on farms and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm not exactly sure, but I'd be sad to see it go. Good thing is, like I said, I think you and I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, it could go either way. If we end up having a third world war and it's post, post-apocalypse, we'll be fishing because we need to, because we need to survive and we'll be hunting because we need to. And it might it might take something like that to push us back to the point where we're able to embrace it for what it is and, and accept the fact that we that we genetically evolved to go out and kill things and, and eat them and to, and to pick things and, and eat them. And yeah, it's, it's fascinating, but we can't know without a crystal ball. And unfortunately I'm going to have to, um, I'm going to have to wrap it up there, mate, because I've got another meeting coming up in about yeah. two minutes time. So. <laughs> oh, well, we're cutting it fine, mate. Well, that was the perfect place. I was going to wrap it up there anyway. And cool. say, uh, yeah, look, man, sorry about the technical uh, stuff at the start, but we got there. And look, man, I realise I'm nobody really, so I really appreciate you uh, spending the time and it was good to have a chat with you. I know it's been a long time. So, yeah, man, I really appreciate it. And uh, is there anything else you wanted to say just at the end or any shout-outs? Oh, not really. Just um, to everyone out there, you know, enjoy your fishing, make the most of it while you can. Um, follow whatever you're passionate about in, in your life and you'll be a happier person as, as a result. And um, as I like to always wrap up with, Tight lines. <laughs> what the what, what the what's the supremacy? Intense chemistry. They expect the list when we sound the list. What's the supremacy? Intense chemistry. Best be aware. What the what's the supremacy? Supremacy. Intense chemistry. What's the supremacy? Intense chemistry. Best be aware. New blood starting to drip. What's the supremacy? Intense chemistry. They expect the list when we sound the list.